Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent American Wrestling Association podcast. I am Chris Tubbs, and I'm not the one you want to. I'm not the one you want to hear from. Frankly, let's bring in the two guys that make this thing go, and uh, let's bring in George Shire and Mick Karch. And guys, we're going to get back to a little bit more of a um, of a normal format here this week. We're going to talk about the best villains, the rule breakers, as they used to be called. But as the kids now use this term, apparently it's a heel. Apparently that's a wrestling term. I didn't know that till I got on the internet, you guys. Did you know that that's actually a wrestling term? Sure. I had no idea. Of course. Why weren't you keep, why'd you keep this from me? I thought well, if, it was, if it's on Wikipedia, it's spelled H-E-A-L. <laughs> Good night, everybody. All right. Good show, guys. Okay. No, but um, before we get into our, our top 10 heels of, of all time, George, you're going to have 10. Mick, you're going to have 10. We'll kind of get into that here in a minute. Um, feedback on the Jumpin' Jim Brunzel interview. Guys, I, we thought that people were going to enjoy Jim, but I had no idea people were going to enjoy it as much as they did. What have you heard, George? Wow. It has been overwhelming. Jimmy needs to come back. We could have listened longer. Love his stories. And I agree with every one of them. I heard from someone this morning, it was posted on my Time Machine page, that uh, one of the fans that listened to us shared the podcast with Brunzel with the boogie-woogie man himself, Jimmy Valiant. And he shared his episode that we did with uh, the best jobbers. And Jimmy Valiant was in that group, and he said he loved it. He said Jimmy Valiant was ecstatic that he was included, and he's enjoying it. What about you, Mick? Nothing but praise for Jim. And a lot of people are saying, you know, I was a Jim Brunzel fan going in. But after listening to this interview, I'm even more so. It doesn't surprise me at all because Jim is a straight shooter. He's a great guy, personality plus mm -hmm. And, uh, man, I, you know, we just touched the surface with him. No question. The and you know what's that, interesting with yeah. Brunzel is on the microphones, when you do interviews back in the day, you know, Jimmy wasn't the most charismatic and the, the best speaker and that sort of thing. And that's not distracting from his great wrestling. But when you listen to him today, he's a great mm -hmm. storyteller. And he tells them straight that he loves them. The, the funny thing about, like, how we do this show and I'm going to get my camera there. There we go. Um, is that, you know, when we start the show, we kind of catch up and, and like you guys were talking with Jim about stuff. People were asking, we need a part two. It's like people don't realize that what you heard was literally like half of the conversation. Like there were things that were, I know he was talking to you guys, but I just felt like there was so much stuff that was, you know, off the record that people would have no idea. So it's like, yeah, we want a part two. If I would have been recording you guys, you would have had a part two and you would have had like AWA unleashed Jim Brunzel uncensored after dark. Like it would have been fantastic. And I'll, I'll take the heat for that. But I think that just shows that what you guys do and how you guys do it, having that personal connection, I thought meant, I thought it meant, it meant so much more to be able to talk to somebody, not only as an interview, you guys, but as a friend, like it makes a world of difference when you have that comfort factor with somebody. I mean, what, what do you think, Mike? Nick? 
Absolutely. And, and George and I have both known Jim Brunzel for 50 years. You know, I mean, it's 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 hard to believe that it's that long. But Jim is a, just a wonderful guy. And to George's point about how much more relaxed he was and how much better he was on our show than when he was cutting promos, you got to remember, George, he didn't have Greg Gagne and Vern standing 10, 10 feet away from him. <laughs> yeah, when he was talking to us. So uh, a little bit more relaxed, for sure. I, I love Jim Rudzell. Just one hell of a guy. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Chris brought out the point that we had been talking before we started taping literally for over a half hour. Yeah. And we were going along, and finally Chris says, well, let's start the show. And Jim thought we were recording. We were taping. <laughs> well, we got a show to do. So we, we truly, we missed out. Honest to God, we missed out on a lot of stuff, and we will. Jimmy will come back with us. You bet. Great, great stuff. We'll come back um, for a second fall. Yeah. Well, now that we're, you know, we've got that, and in, in response still, you guys, has been fantastic. And as you can see on the bottom of the screen, if you're looking on uh, YouTube, um, rate, review, subscribe. Um, there it is on the bottom of the screen as well. We're pretty much all over. Wherever you can find podcasts, go ahead and subscribe and what makes this show special to you guys? We're going to talk about the heels here in a minute. The AWA, I think some people, you know, I, I start to see that there are some that specialize in Mid Atlantic, and and you know, some there are some territories that have their podcast out there, but it's not done in this format. And why, guys, is this not? I don't want to say important because I don't want to put ourselves in a position that. You know, this is absolutely, you must listen to this. You must watch this. Obviously, we, we want people to. But why is this such a different product in a very saturated wrestling podcast landscape? Let's be honest. There are a lot of podcasts out there, a lot of really, really good ones. There are a lot of really talented people in this space. But why, you guys, and let us I'll, I'll start with you, Mick. Why is this AWA unleashed and what we're doing and what we're talking about and how we're talking about it? Why is it so important or maybe something that wrestling fans should know? A, a couple of things. First of all, from a history standpoint, uh, the AWA is 30 years gone now. And uh, modern day wrestling fans especially have no idea the history of the AWA. We want you to know about it because it was such an integral part of professional wrestling history, especially where we do it right here in the, in the state of Minnesota. The other thing is we're talking kind of a personal experiences because we know the guys. We had some of the inside track. We're going to tell you stories that nobody else will tell you. Uh, and I think our format, you know, we're not talking at you. We're talking with you. Uh, we've mentioned it before. We're three guys who love the old AWA. We love wrestling. We love talking about wrestling. And that's what we're doing. We're not preaching. We're not getting up on a soapbox. We're having fun. And the other thing is we're not rehearsed. We have a list today of some guys that we're going to talk about, as Chris said, but we don't have a script in front of us on any of our shows for our listeners. We are mm -hmm. off the cuff. We ask a question, we get a question, we make a comment as it comes to us. And so there's no rehearsal on this. It is basically unleashed. Nobody yeah. feeds George his lines to bury the wrestling fans. He does that on his own. 
So let's let's just be clear about that. That's that's not that's not scripted. <laughs> no, well, the, the, not, the, view, the views of George Karch or uh, George Karch. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, wow, whoa, whoa. I, I'm sorry. I'm done. To both of us. I can't. I'm that's sorry. <laughs> Both of us have been drop kicked with that one. <laughs> oh my dear God! See, this is what happens when my, when my schedule at my regular job changes during the week, and I don't have the ability. I'm like, oh my God, I fucked that up in the. <laughs> God, I'm gonna have to edit. Um, well, we're off to a good start. Um, good luck right. in future endeavors. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my God! It's uncensored. It's unleashed. All right. Yes, who? <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I've heard that before. Are we um, going to do a show today? Yeah, I suppose we probably should. Okay. Um, okay. So here's what we've got. You guys are each going to come up with a list of ten villains or heels, and these are not in any particular order. These are just wrestlers or performers that you felt fit the criteria of what a bad guy or villain rule breaker, whatever, what they were. But I want to ask you guys, what makes a good heel? What makes a good bad guy? And what, what was the criteria that you guys had? Uh, George, why don't you go ahead and go? When I look at what made a good bad guy in the pre wrestling era, it had to be someone that could irritate the fans to the point of getting them out of their seat and yelling and screaming and throwing their popcorn at them. And that wrestler had to do something, whether it be strut, whether it be a bully, whether it be uh, pulling hair, anything that they could do that would really get those fans mm -hmm. to be frustrated. And some guys were really, really good at it. And they got to the point where the fans just wanted to climb into the ring. And that's what makes a good heel. Mm -hmm. uh, what about you, Mick? I think you have to differentiate between what a heel was back then and what a heel is now. Because really, unless you're an MJF, who I think stands alone today as, as the biggest heel in wrestling, the lines are blurred. You know, uh, uh, the, the, the best heat that heels get a lot of times now is when they cut a promo in front of the live crowd in whatever city they're in, Topeka or Omaha or whatever, and they bury the hometown. That's yeah. the extent of the real heat that they get. So that's not a real wrestling heel. There's no psychology there. That's just picking up, you know, the, the right at right at the top of the barrel. And uh, I think psychology is the big difference between back then and now. The and other thing I'd point out, ahead, sorry, Chris. The other thing I'd point out is that the the wrestler has to be able to make the fans hate them. Whereas today, they go back and forth so many times. There was an interview just about three, four years ago with Big Show. And he said, before he goes out, he has to find out that day what he is. Because they've switched him back so many times. Mm -hmm. He needs to know what he is tonight. And the fans don't know. There, There's no... A heel had to be a heel and so bad you wanted to come back and see him get his ass kicked again. That was important. And the baby face had to be somebody that you were going to cheer to the rafters. And there was a clear line. Today, they all dress alike. They all look alike. They have the same styles. They're all six foot, nine inches tall. There's no difference. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point that you guys bring up because it is like nobody has that real heat that, you know, th that 
you could just tell when the fans hate somebody because they believe that this is actually who this person is, which makes a guy like MJF so unique. Whereas it's like, okay, we're a character, we're playing this person, but we're really somebody else. And, and I think that's the whole part of just how the business has been broken down, how the business has been exposed, because you, you don't have those, those real heels. Cause even a guy, you know, like Roman Reigns, I mean, people love Roman Reigns or, you know, Adam Cole, people love the boom, you know, it's like th there are guys that are out there, but fans for whatever reason, whether it's the entrance or it's a move or whatever, there's something about a lot of these heels, these bad guys nowadays, that there's at least one thing that's endearing to fans. And to me, if you're going to be a true heel, you've got to be despicable. Like from the minute you get out of the curtain, the minute you come from backstage all the way through to the end, it's like, this is somebody I just really hate. I really despise them. And I think there's a big difference with that. Chris, that's why I would use MJF as the example. I don't think that there's anybody that does it better than he does. I, You know, he's, it's just... Like you say, from the minute he comes out of the curtain, this guy gets such incredible, almost hate. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, yeah, he's he's a star among stars. There's no doubt about it. All right. That being said, uh, you guys, I mean, we're like 13 minutes into it, which is, you know, great. I mean, you got to set the table, uh, especially for uh, George Karch and, and Mick Shire here. Um, so let's go ahead and get into it, guys. Um, Man, you know how that it really is. Nothing you could say could hurt me more. <laughs> oh, believe me, you don't know what's in my coffee here. You're like, what's in your coffee? I'm like, not in your damn business. There you go. All right. So, uh, George, why don't you go ahead and start? Uh, you got a group of 10. And again, this is in no particular order. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, get it knocked out. Uh, Georgie, what did you got for uh, your first name there? Well, I'm going to pick a guy who I thought was as good a heel as you could ever get. And it's a guy named the crusher not the crusher the crusher when he was a heel when he came to the awa in 1962 i don't think there was anyone maybe two guys before him as a heel in the awa that could get as much heat and as much fan reaction for him being the bully that he was and he was he was a bully he was he was obnoxious he would pound his opponents he would snarl at the fans. He wouldn't listen to the referee. He would kick his opponents when they were down. He wouldn't release the holds when the referee would tell him to. He would do things behind the referee's back. That was the crusher that I remember. And he was mo he was mobile in those. I mean, this, look at the maniacal look, maniacal look on this guy's face. You know, he's ready to take out a town. And he was so believable. And what made it unique was that when his heel days were done, he was able to make a transformation. And that's something else that's lost in wrestling today. And when he made that transformation, it was forever. But great heel. All right, Mick, uh, what do you got for your number one here? Stunningly, nobody will expect this. Nick Bockwinkel. Uh, Nick was so different in so many ways from the heels that had preceded him uh it, just no comparison there was no screaming there was no shouting he came out and he delivered these eloquent thousand dollar words basically berating everybody's lifestyle the eight to five humanoids and the you know whatever and the thing about nick that made him such a great heel 
His arrogance was so palpable, you believed it. Fans were almost afraid to approach Nick because they believed that he was really looking down on him. And he would, you know, what he would say about the opponents, he would just belittle them, pick them apart piece by piece, you know, calling the, the crusher, you know, guttural or, or whatever, Neanderthal or, you know, things like that. Plus the fact that Nick was so damn good in the ring at at just putting everybody over. And that was the mark of a great champion. You make your opponent look good. You don't have the same match every night. So far and away, uh, you know, Nick, the ultimate heel. All right, uh, George, what do you got for number two? Oh, yeah. Vampiro Furbo, the wild bull of the Pampas. <clears throat> when he came to the AWA... He was billed out of Argentina, the wilds of Argentina. He was untamed. And, you know, when you looked at Furpo, he had a head of hair that was this long, bushy, the beard hanging all over. He had the hair all over his body. He ran around the ring with totally uncontrollable. And he was from Argentina, and he, he just was going to hurt every opponent. He stopped, kicked, gouged, and he was a natural heel. Everybody wanted to see him stop. Look at that. And he's giving the, the line right there. The, oh, yeah. But inside the ring as a heel, I don't think there were few that could top the wildness. And you really believe that we talk about that suspension of disbelief. You believed that Furpo was from the untamed part of the country. And who is going to stop this maniac? And he drew fans. And that's what it was all about. Yeah, that, I I love that picture, George. I, I do. I just think that's I think that's a great picture, and that that encapsulates what I feel like when I think of a heel, and I think of somebody that's out of control that just could like legitimately hurt you. I mean, that's kind of that's what I think about is that right there. I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a great one. Uh, Mick, what do you got for what do you got for your next one? Well, besides going to number two here, I just wanted to reference, you know, when George did that roar at the beginning, that's exactly the same sound George hears when he goes in and they tell him the buffet will be open for an extra 15 minutes tonight. The reaction is exactly the same. The only problem is, is that when I'm told that the buffet is empty because Karch was in front of me. That's a true story. My, my number two on the list uh, it, it follows a natural progression with Nick Bockwinkle. And the man I'm going to talk about is Ray Stevens. And there are a lot of wrestlers in the business that will say Ray Stevens was the greatest in-ring worker of all time. From a psychology standpoint, from, you know, being the ultimate heel, facial expressions, whatever. Uh, Ray started wrestling when he was about 15 years old. And, you know, he nobody did it better than Ray Stevens. They called him the crippler, of course, for, for many of the angles that he would work over the years. Uh, when they teamed him with Nick Bockwinkle, it was a stroke of genius. Uh, Ray, to my estimation, sets the standard for what a wrestling heel, a tough guy, uh, should be all about. A, a, a tough brawler who could still wrestle. And why he hasn't made Hall of Fames tells you how full of shit all these Hall of Fames are, because if anybody deserves it, it's Ray Stevens. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I don't know why Ray Stevens isn't a lot, in a, a lot of these Hall of Fames. It, it just, yeah, it, it's more than nothing, more than a vanity project, right. is, you know, the way that I see it. Uh, Georgie, what do you got for your next one? You know, I've got a guy that's, uh fans wouldn't realize this, but he was in a lot of ways like Nick Bockwinkle before Nick was Nick. And I'm talking about hard-boiled Haggerty. HB was never a guy that came out and shouted, raved, and ranted on his TV interviews. He was a wrestler that was in the ring, and he was tough, such, thus the name, hard-boiled. And he would beat his opponents down when they were the baby faces. He had a long-running feud with Vern Gagne through the 50s and into the 60s. But he was the kind of a guy that when you put a bully against him, HB would automatically have the fans behind him for that one night because they knew he was the toughest guy when he was beating up the baby faces. And when they put him against a fellow heel like Akinji Shibuya or somebody else, HB got the fans. But he was never, ever a fan favorite. He was a heel. And he was one of those rare guys that you threw him in with somebody else as a fellow heel and he got the cheers. But really an arrogant, strutting and a very good wrestler. One of my favorite heels of all time. All right, Mick, uh, what do you got for your next one? Another man that, to my estimation, is on the Hall of Fame, the Mount Rushmore of the AWA, and that's Larry Pretty Boy Hennig. Larry, of course, started out as a babyface. We've talked about this before on previous episodes in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. That, to me, is one of the greatest promo pictures I've ever seen. Uh, I just love that shot of Larry in his later years. You talk about a tough guy. This guy was the real deal. And back in an era when the fans believed what they were seeing continuously, when Larry turned on Vern Gagne, and they did the old student turns on the teacher angle. He got such tremendous heat. And for 12, 13 years, Larry Hennig was one of the premier heels in wrestling. Of course, he turned babyface in 1974. But Larry had it all. He could wrestle. He was like George uses the phrase, a bully. He made you believe. He came out and he sliced and diced you on those interviews. And, man, did he hate Vern Gagne. Uh, so, uh, to me, if you're going to talk about the greats in the AWA, absolutely, Larry Hennig. Yeah, the thing and I point out about Larry, too, is that he was big, legit big, size-wise. And when he got into the ring, he wasn't your great wrestler, even though he had amateur training, he wasn't your great wrestler and he was able to be believable, but outside the ring, he was still legit tough. He wasn't one of these guys that was made tough in the ring and then couldn't back it up outside. If you got in Larry's face outside, he was going to take you out legit. Just a tough guy. Got outside a pussy kid. So let me let me ask you guys this then. Uh, were there ever any times where, because maybe fans really didn't, it, it isn't approach or it isn't perceived the way that it is today. Were there ever times that you remember fans would try some of these guys outside and be like, okay, well, if you're really a bad guy, how bad are you? I mean, do you guys ever remember instances where these guys would be tested by, by fans, whether it's, you know, in a bar or on the street or coming out of the arenas or whatever? 
First of all, it happened all the time. Uh, we just didn't hear about it. But, you know, whether it's a Ray Stevens or a Dick Murdoch or Dusty Rhodes or Larry Henning, yeah, people will try to test them all the time. I remember one night at the Minneapolis Auditorium, a loudmouth fan was John and Larry Henning on the way back to the locker room. And one of the police officers had had about enough of this guy. And he said, you want to go in there and talk to Larry? Well, you know, the guy's girlfriend was there, so he had to play big man. So he said, yeah, let me in there. Well, they opened up the door of the locker room, and then about 30 seconds later, after what sounded like, uh, you know, an explosion, the guy came out, and he was wearing his nose from ear to ear. And uh, Larry Hannick was one of those guys, and there were a lot of them. You just didn't miss. And Vern always said, you better win the bar fights if you're going to get in one. Mm -hmm. Well, and that was important. And with a guy like Larry Hannick, you know, we've had references about how good Billy Robinson was, and you didn't want to test Billy Robinson. Well, Larry Hennig is one guy that could and did. Billy didn't want to mess with Larry on an outside legit shoot basis because Larry would take, I really believe it to this day, he would take him down. And he did at one point push Billy against the wall. And that's a story for another time. Wow. See, I, I don't, I don't, I just, I find things like that interesting because you know, you're always like, oh, well, how bad are you? You're a tough guy, huh? You know, I mean, you, you hear, you know, guys get liquid courage all the time. So I, I just, I find that very interesting when, and it's interesting how you say, you know, if you're going to get in a bar fight, especially if you're healed, you you better be able to come out the other end. So well, that was uh, legit advice. And, and from Vern, he told him, you, you're in a bar fight, you better win or you're out of here. And yes. Chris, just real quickly, real yeah. Uh, there were guys that wanted to get in the bar fights. They actually went in there just itching to get into a scrape. And I mentioned Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. They, they Are you were talking just, about the wrestlers or the fans? I'm talking about the wrestlers. Okay. Rhodes and Murdoch went in there, and they were almost begging people, you know, to come up. And, and uh, they tore apart the Flame Cafe on 14th and Nicollet more than once, <laughs> uh, you know, getting into fights and tossing fans over the bar. So – uh, yeah, they, they, they tried to test them. The fans did, but it usually did not come out in their favor. And that scene in the wrestler movie with Rhodes and Murdoch over at Mazelak's bar, where they got into the fight and they were yep. warned from the promoter, don't get into any more fights. Mm -hmm. That was a very true depiction of what Rhodes and Murdoch would do. They'd go in and after, you know, people have had a you know, four, five, six barley pops and think they're Superman. Barley Rhodes pops. and Murdoch wanted to clean up the place and get into trouble. And then Vern would have to pick up the bill to clean up the bar, you know. So he said, you win, but don't get in them. I've never heard it called a barley pop before. I love it. I've, I've heard it called like, you know, daddy water and stuff like that, but never a barley pop. That's interesting. Well, we're I'm here to educate that. you youngsters. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Pa. <laughs> All right. So uh, I believe uh, you had, uh, I think that was you, Mick. Uh, what's your next one here, George? Well, I'm going to go with one of the greatest heels ever. And it's the gimmick sometimes that makes that heel so good. And it's a lost gimmick in today's world of wrestling. And I'm talking about Dr. X. Now we had had some masked men here in the AWA, but I think the one that is mentioned and remembered the most is Dr. X. Just the sheer idea of putting that mask on and being arrogant enough to say that I don't want anybody to see my face. And if they saw me, they'd be afraid of me because I'm too tough and I'm going to beat your champion and I'm going to beat this challenger. 
And the idea of who is he under the mask, mm -hmm. that made him a natural heel. Plus, you add in the personality of Dr. X. He wrestled against every baby face this AWA offered for three years. And we're talking a who's who of the business in that time frame. Really one of the most over heels ever. And I don't think any fan out there, young or old, will say they don't remember Dr. X. That's the impact of a heel. All right, uh, let's get to your next one here, Mick. And, and I mean, th this was a guy that growing up scared the shit out of me. Like, I, I mean, he he legit scared me. Your next one did. If, if you're going to where I think you're going. You know, it's amazing that this guy scared people when you when you know him outside the ring and the personality that he had. And I'm talking about the old school teacher himself, the old monorail driver, Baron Von Raschke. The transformation that the Baron made from when he got into the business, you talk about a guy that could was like a sedative. If you listen to him during his interviews in his rookie stage, my God, he was barely audible, and he, it was a snooze fest. Well, all of a sudden, you know, when he turned heel and Jim Rashke out of Nebraska, Rashke from Nebraska, as he likes to say, <laughs> when he turned heel, it was so amazing, and this entirely different personality, you can't believe this came out of the same guy. It's like this pussycat turned into a mountain lion. And for years and years, the fans who don't remember the Baron as anything other than a baby face, he was so scary. He had the drool, the spit, the, you know, that is all the people need to know, the claw, whatever, the goose step. He was the epitome of the foreign wrestling heel. And talk about a legend in the state of Minnesota. I don't think there's, a, you know, anybody that compares with the Baron. And outside the ring, one of the nicest individuals and most soft-spoken. I asked the Baron one time, I said, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you can make that tremendous transformation to the character that you are. Pure, unadulterated genius. I love the Baron. Let's go. The with, thing about oh, the Baron ahead, too that worked so well is we were still in that era, as Mick pointed about the foreign wrestler. When you had a, a German or a Japanese wrestler, um, and, and as we said, they were Japs back then. They, they we weren't politically correct, and you had the Russian wrestlers. They had something that when they could put that off, I mean, that was natural hatred from the fans and Baron. He learned from guys like Mad Dog and Hans Schmidt, and he did it so well, just so well. All right, uh, George, we're about halfway through here, you guys, and doing pretty good. So uh, what you got for your next one here, George? I have a guy named Stan Kowalski. Oh. Now, you know, when you think of wrestling heels, villains, bad guys, Stan Kowalski wasn't a big, hairy guy. He wasn't a, a guy that claimed to be from some foreign country that was going to eliminate America. He was a big mouth on the interviews. He was obnoxious. He was a braggadocious individual. In the ring, he was, he was plain in the sense that he used something so simple as a knee pad that would have the foreign object in it. And he'd use it when the referee wasn't looking. And if the referee checked his knee pad he'd automatically just kind of slip it into his trunks. The fans could get so behind that. 
the referee was blind. He was missing it. And I mean, look at this picture of Stan in his heyday. He I was love, a wild, that's a great picture. He was a wild man. And he was Stan Crusher Kowalski, even when he was the big K, a name he didn't appreciate. He was a tough guy. And he was legit tough. He was one of those guys that, you know, he could handle himself outside the ring if the mm-hmm. Marley Pop individuals wanted to push him a little bit, he could do it. But outside the ring again, he was one of those guys that could turn it on, be so bad, and outside the ring, man, you just want to give him a hug. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you got for your next one here, Mick? In the scheme of things, this man came into the AWA for that proverbial cup of coffee, but his uh, his reputation had preceded him. And you can't talk about the all-time great heels without talking about Bruiser Brody. Or as he was known in the AWA and in some other areas as King Kong Brody. A wild man, a tough guy. He did things his own way. Uh, If he didn't like a finish of a match, as I've stated before, he would change the finish in the middle. He'd walk out of the match if he, you know, was not happy. He did not take any shit from any promoters. He wanted to make sure that he got the payoffs that he was that he felt he deserved. But you talk about a man who was believable and who would legitimately scare you. And I had the opportunity to work with him. Again, you know, the transformation from the time you're talking to him in the locker room, they open up the door and this completely different character comes out barking. It is just phenomenal. And he was a a great baby face too, you know, in many territories, but I'm telling you, for the time he was in the AWA, his feud with Jerry Blackwell, legendary, and uh, you can't have a list without Bruiser Brody on it. No question. I'd like to point out about Brody when Mick says that, you know, he was a babyface in some territories. We should point out that when he was a babyface, he was still the same yeah. Bruiser Brody. He didn't change his style. He was still mean. He was still tough. He was still brutal. He was believable and that's the reason he became popular unlike some guys when they become a baby face later on and they are a baby face because they can no longer do some of the heel things anymore and maybe they're advancing in age so they're slowing down and they become a baby face but bruiser brody yes right on top yeah i know this isn't a brody episode but something you said Mick, kind of caught my attention that if he didn't like to finish to a match or he didn't like so you just walk out it's like how can somebody like that if he doesn't like it? I mean, was he just, was he hard to do business with? I mean, because everything I hear about Brody was, I mean, he was beloved by, you know, people that he worked with, but if he doesn't like the finish of a match, I mean, I just, that would be a liability for promoters, wouldn't it? Uh, Of course it would. And it was always a risk when you would bring Bruiser Brody into a territory, unless he was there for long-term which he was in a couple of areas. But you knew what you were getting with Brody. The promoters knew it. They knew about Stan Hansen. I think the thing with Brody is if you were fair with him, he was going to be fair with you. If you tried to screw him over or if you didn't listen to him or whatever in any way, shape, or form, he he would walk out. He didn't care. He's, he's God. He had his, mm-hmm. his Halliburton ready to go. So, um yeah, difficult to work with, yes, but again, you know, you knew what you were getting with them. If you had the guts to sign them, you got to hmm. take the package. Hmm. Just it's it's just interesting how like I can't wrap my head around if you know if he's a liability, you know, screw him. But I I guess you know 
it's a risk reward sort of situation. In this day and age, if somebody tried to screw with Vince McMahon, they're gone. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just you, you change and finish, hit the bricks. It wasn't like that back then. And Vern was in a position in the mid 1980s when things were going a little bit a little bit south that he was rolling the dice with everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah. Brody's a good example. All right, I, I know kind of sidebar there. So, uh, Georgia, let's get back into to your list here. I want to talk about another guy who was billed as King Kong in the AWA. This was one of those examples where when Brody came along later, fa fans forgot about this King Kong I'm going to speak of, and the, and the promoters wanted that. But I'm talking about Angelo Mosca. Now, here's a legit tough guy, football oh. player. A, you want to talk about a bully and a, just kind of an ornery edge to him that – from my vantage point, was real outside the ring, too. He was a guy that, look at him, you believe him when he's tough. And when you got a guy who can come out on an interview and be combing the hair on his chest while he's talking to you, <laughs> I got to tell you, don't insult him because you're going to eat that comb. He was I thought you said you're going to eat the hair. Uh, you, it, the comb would have hair in it. You'd get a fur ball, you'd be like a cat spitting it up on the floor next week. So... Brody was a tough King Kong, but I think Angelo Mosca, he just fit the bill. You, you could see him climbing the side of the building with Faye Ray. He just was believable. And I, I really enjoyed his year and a half in the AWA. I thought he was one of the best heels we ever had. And he was in a lot of great programs. And you should have heard his interview that he had with regarding Larry Hennig. Larry Hennig, of course, Mosca's called King Kong. Well, Hennig would come out and call him Ping Pong Monkey Man. And Mosca would come out and say, I'm King Kong. I'm not Ping Pong. The man's sick. You know, it was great. He just absolutely. Did you, Ping did Pong you, know, did you see George's little moves there like he was a marionette almost? That was <laughs> I like that. Ping Pong Monkey Man. You had banana ears. Banana ears, he called him too. Yes. Oh my God! AWA Unleashed, no strings attached. Yeah. Oh, very good. Like very that? good. No strings attached. Bob right. <laughs> oh my God! You, you mentioned a cat and a fur ball, and I just—I literally spit out my coffee. Um, well, <laughs> let's move on. Can we? Hey, I don't know where we're going with that. All right, Mick, uh, you go ahead. I, I'm speechless. I am without speech. I think that the man that I'm going to talk about right now for the duration of the time that he was in the AWA probably had more heat than just about anybody. And again, you talk about the, the foreign adversary. Well, this guy was legit foreign, and he was from where he said he was from. And I'm talking about the legendary Sheik Adnan L. Casey. No matter what you did with Adnan, whether it was hitting Tito Santana with a sword when he first debuted in the AWA or when you put him with Jerry Blackwell, your highness, <laughs> whatever the case may be, Adnan was phenomenal. And, you know, how many times did we see, hear him say that, the you know, the, the barking of the dogs won't stop the caravan and the people are lined up at the airport in Baghdad waiting for him to bring the AWA championship? tag team title back to Baghdad, kind of similar, similar to Otto Vance in the single championship, but maybe just with a little more intensity. And to show you the heat that Adnan had, when actually when he went to WWF 
and he was managing Sergeant Slaughter there for a while as the Iraqi sympathizer, they got legitimate death threats. Yes, I remember that. Point yeah. where WWE said, we got, we got to stop this. Um, outside the ring, one of my favorite people on the planet. And that's a fact. I absolutely love Adnan LKC. Um, just a great guy, a great story, and a tremendous heel. Who, again, when he started his career as Adnan Casey and then Billy White Wolf, the consummate babyface, uh, but just a terrific guy. Jerry Blackwell, you big fat smile. <laughs> All right, uh, what do you got? I, what do you got for your next one here, uh, Georgie? My next one is we're going back to a German heel, and I'm talking about a name that's not as familiar to probably a lot of people, Horst Hoffman. You know. Horst Hoffman was a German heel in the look at the look at the cape he's wearing. Do I need to say anything more about what's on that cape? He was a German heel aligned with Baron von Raschke at the height of Baron. Is that what I think it is? Yes. Oh, damn. And when they would come out and Baron also had a matching one just for those that would care to know. But you're talking about, again, that non-politically correctness. And when you had that German heel that was. Uh, gonna just stop all America. It was it was the greatest heat in the world, and we can't do that anymore in our world. But with Horst Hoffman, he didn't speak much. His actions were in the ring. Yeah. He was the exact opposite of what Baron was as a wrestler. Baron perceived the stomping and the kicking, and the pounding. Horst Hoffman wrestled. He was a consummate Billy Robinson type. Mm-hmm. And that's what made him so over with the fans that they hated him was because he could have not cheated and won, but he had to cheat. And he was Horst Hoffman, mm-hmm. Herr Ho- Hoffman, as Baron would call him. But I thought he was one of our greatest heels. And I, I really loved that tag team. And I thought that was a different look at pers- a, a German persona with Hoffman and the character. You make a really good point there, George, and I was actually going to follow up with it, but you pretty much nailed it on the head that I think one of the reasons you can't get that sort of legit heat or be a, a, you know, a heel like you were back in the day is because of political correctness. You, you can't do that. Like you can't insult people by calling them what you used to, or you can't use the swastika. You, you can't. Like all of that is, is taboo because of, you know, the, the world and the society that we're in nowadays. And, and it doesn't make it wrong. It's just, it's just our reality. Could you imagine right now with what's happening in Russia, with oh. Russia, in our society today, could you imagine if the Kelmakov brothers, Ivan and Carol, were pulling off that Russian gimmick? I mean, they were so hated as it is mm-hmm. in their heyday. But if that was tried today, I mean, honest to God, Ivan and Carol, as great a guys as they were outside the ring, just playing a part, they would be killed. The fans would literally find them and kill them. Or they would be held accountable. So we can't do it anymore. That's a good thing. But in the sense of wrestling and just putting on a show and letting us Mm -hmm. suspend that disbelief, yeah, it's a tragedy that we can't do it anymore. That's that's what's different. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a, a fantastic point, George. And I think it's one of those that maybe people overlook uh, in the differences in, in today's wrestling compared to the old school that, that we're talking about. 
Uh, what do you got for your next one here, Mick? Very familiar to fans of the modern era, era of professional wrestling. Um, the former, I guess, husband, uh, son-in-law to Vern Gagne, husband to Kathy Gagne, and former AWA champion, Larry Zabisco. And, you know, Larry is probably known as much for his mouth as he was for his in-ring work. Um, he would take shots at everybody, especially in the state of Minnesota. Had a running feud verbally with Kent Herbeck of the Minnesota Twins. For some reason, he latched on to Kent and decided he was mortal enemies. Uh, Larry Zabisco was a genius when it came to psychology. Larry is known as the king of the stall. He would stall 10 minutes when he got into the ring to start the match. He would duck out of the ring four or five times during the match, and it would drive the people crazy. So in that sense, Larry did so much with so little, but he was such a tremendous wrestler. And towards the end of the AWA's era, he was absolutely a necessity. You know, people say, ah, oh, Vern gave the championship to his son-in-law. Well, you know what? He did, but Larry Zabisco was a consummate heel. Calling everybody spudheads in the state of Minnesota, in the AWA area. Uh, Larry was, he was a genius from a psychological standpoint and and certainly one of the shining lights in the in the final days of the AWA. You're going to call people spudheads. That would work great in the Red River Valley in Moorhead. You know, oh, home of the spuds, by the way. There you go. So, uh, you know, just shout, shout out to uh, Moorhead in the Red River Valley. Oh, um, oh. You know, hey, I, I spent I spent some time up there. Uh, you know, Moorhead. I mean, where do you think we got our women? I mean, come on. Oh, I mean, I went to NDSU. I mean, that's standard. You know, for now, damn, she's ugly. And I went to oh, I went God. to college there. <laughs> I'm staying out of this. Wait a minute, we're, we're going into a different show here. That's <laughs> no. right. All right, got about uh, ten minutes here left. Get now. I'm I'm kidding. NDSU's got hot women. Um, at least when I was up there. So did Moorhead. So did Concordia, by the way. I mean, you know, um, I had a good time. So Next what, program will be all about colleges in the state of Minnesota. Giddy up. Yeah. Giddy up. All right. Uh, what do you got there, George, for your uh, next one here? I'm going to go with a guy named Big Thunder, Gene Kaniski. You know, I mentioned the Crusher earlier in his heel days. Gene Kaniski was the epitome in that early era of the 60s, the AWA launching, that he was big, he was tough, he was real in the ring. And when he got in the ring, he didn't have any flashy outfits. He didn't have any flashy boots, capes, hairdo. He was buzzed on the top, and he was Gene Kaniski, and he was tough. And he'd come out on his interviews, and he told you what he was going to do. Yeah, I hated him because he said it, but he went in the ring, and he did it. And you were disappointed when you went home, and you wanted to go to the ticket office and get another ticket. That's what Gene Kaniski was. He was over huge in that he was AWA champion. He was AWA tag team champion. He was the United States champion in the AWA and coming off of a great football career. And he went on to being a great star in the business for the NWA. So I think in the AWA history of heels, Gene Kaniski was the real deal. One of the great scenes in all wrestling AWA history, Gene Kaniski hit Vern Gagne over the head with a bottle of Vern's own liquid vitamin, Gerilac. Yep took a swig of it and spit it on Vern's prone 
body. So yeah, Kaniski was a, a stellar heel. Wow. Yeah, that that's gonna get you some heat. Well, oh, when, you, when you do that to the champion Vern yeah. Gagne, you know, yeah. Minnesota born, Minnesota mm-hmm. bred, yeah, you're you're the heel. Wow. That's uh that's that's absolutely fantastic. Uh what's your next one here, Mick? Probably the most hated wrestler in, in the AWA's waning days, and I'm talking about from the mid-1980s until the conclusion, was the man from South Africa, uh, Colonel De Beers. Ed Wiskoski, Easy Ed, uh, Colonel De Beers. And again, you talk about something that, that was politically incorrect, to this day, when people talk about their most hated wrestlers, when I do a poll on my page, De Beers is right up there because he was so believable in his, in his disdain, in his racist attitudes. Uh, you know, his feuds with Jimmy Snuka, his feud was just legendary in the AWA. And then, of course, when he wrestled an African-American man, Derek Starfire Dukes, in the later years, and they, they played off the the angle of actually, if Dukes lost, De Beers would paint him white. Can you imagine trying to do that today? And let alone Vern Gagne agreeing to something like that. Now you got that look on your face, Chris. That was actually a storyline. It was years, and, and this is going back, you know, just to nineteen. You're kidding me. That's that was real. That was 100%. It absolutely happened that De Beers wrestled Derek Dukes, but if (sighs) lost, he would agree to paint himself white. So the heat that the Colonel had Mm. was absolutely incredible. And again, George and I have talked about this so many times. Outside the ring, Easy Ed Wiskoski, one of the nicest guys, brilliant, brilliant man. As a matter of fact, when he went to New York, they called him the Polish Prince. Ed Wiskoski. And all of a sudden, he's Colonel De Beers from South Africa. But you talk about a man who generated serious hatred, Colonel De Beers. Wow. Yep. I, I, I can't even imagine, like, painting somebody in whiteface uh, the, you know, over a, a wrestling angle. I mean, that oh, just... Yeah. That, it, it doesn't even seem like it's, like, a, a legit, you know, story that somebody would greenlight. Um, man, we got, like, nine minutes left here and we got four more guys. So uh, Georgie get to uh, get to the next one in your list. Well, I'm going to talk about somebody that we've mentioned on our show and we will continually because he was so vital to the AWA, but as a heel, um, I think it's usually hard to top Bobby Heenan, you know, and here's the thing about Bobby Heenan. He was arrogant in those days where you see him there, you see, it says pretty boy, Bobby Heenan. You know, a guy comes out with bleach blonde hair, a little bit of a strut and arrogance to him and calls himself pretty boy. That alone, you hate him right away. But he was also a bragging guy that says, I am the brain. I think you hate him right away because he's putting himself above you. And what he would do during his interviews with his his family, he said he didn't have a stable because he didn't have horses. He had a family, wrestlers. And you know how hated he was? He was hated enough that they, the fans, when Nick Bockwinkel wrestled against Sheik Adnan El Casey, they had to get Bobby Heenan out of the arena in order to make Nick 
that the baby that yep. night. Yep. Mick, you were there. I was there. Otherwise, the sheik would have. I'm I'm positive that the sheik would have been that one night would have been the favorite with Bobby there. And what they did was they had Bobby interfere. They had the sheik take his sword and get him in the forehead and bust mm -hmm. him up and carry him out. And then Nick was the baby. That was the only way they could do it. If they'd have left Heenan in there, the fans would have been cheering Iraq, Iraq, Iraq. <laughs> wow. I mean, that may be a stretch, but that's how that's how over Bobby was as a heel. He he was never a baby face in the AWA. They hated him. And that's that's the mark of a good one. When you probably can't even change him to babyface. Yeah. But uh, what do you got for your next one here, Mick? Legendary, legendary to a fault. Both as a heel and then a babyface when he ended his career. I'm talking about the one and only Mad Dog Vashon. When Mad Dog came here in the early 1960s, people hadn't seen his like ever. I mean, talk about a guy who was biting and snarling and scratching and drooling. And, of course, he defeated Vern Gagne for the AWA Heavyweight Championship in 1964. He had some legendary matches with the Crusher and later on with, with Joe LaDuke. And, uh, I mean, just incredible, incredible talent. And this is a guy who was a former alternate on the Canadian Olympic team not Algeria, uh, and outside the ring, the nicest, most soft-spoken, wonderful puppy dog that you could ever want to meet. But I I'm telling you, as a heel, nobody did it better and was more believable than Mad Dog Vashon. And uh, last one here, guys, because uh, I got one comment I want to wrap up the, the show with um, that I want to get your thoughts on. But uh, give me your last one here, George. we got about five minutes, so uh, let's – Get it about 60 seconds here. I'm going to talk about Jerry Blackwell. You know, when Jerry Blackwell came here, Vern wanted him to be a baby face. And he introduced him and actually had him billed as Farmer Blackwell, meaning that fans would rally behind him based on that name. But he couldn't. Jerry Blackwell had that natural arrogance about him. And the fans started calling him Fatwell right from the beginning. And we've all talked about how Jerry was so good at being the bad guy and the things that man did as a heel. And when he delivered an interview, you believed him and the things he would do to his opponents. And I, I think that our last uh, run with Jerry Blackwell, he was one of those guys that eventually he could become a baby because he was such a good heel, yeah. but he couldn't have been a heel when he first came here. But then uh, your last one here, Mick. Last one, I would be completely remiss if I didn't talk about this guy, second-generation wrestler, one of the best ever in my estimation, and I'm talking about Kurt Hennig. And in, prior to the Mr. Perfect days, of course, when he was in the AWA and the AWA champion, again, he turned on Greg Gagne, made the transition from babyface to heel. When he was a babyface, of course, he and Scott Hall, AWA tag team champions, when Kurt won the AWA title as a singles wrestler, I think that is really when you saw that first big transformation into the superstar that Kurt Hennig was going to be. Uh, certainly he met his full stride when he became Mr. Perfect for WWF. But in the waning years of the AWA, this man carried the promotion. I'm telling you, he did with his feuds with Greg Gagne and even Nick Bockwinkel. A tremendously gifted wrestler. 
Kurt has got to be one of the best heels ever. Must be something in the bloodlines from yep. Larry oh, yeah. to Kurt to Joe. Yep. I, and, and I mean, who knows what else is going to be coming down the, the pike in, ter- in terms of the, the Hedding bloodline. I mean, you talk about uh, royalty in Minnesota wrestling, obviously the, the Ganyas, but uh, I would say that the Hedigs are, are pretty much right up there as well. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Um, let's get to the trivia here, guys, because uh, the trivia's. Um, we'll save the shout outs for next week. Cause I didn't get the, uh, I, I didn't get the banner ready. Um, so let's, uh, go ahead and get it here. We're going to play the same trivia question. If, uh, you want to see it, I don't know if you can see it on your screen there, Mick. I certainly can. The, uh, want you to tell us who were the last two wrestlers that the late Adrian Adonis had major feuds with in the AWA before he left the territory and unfortunately passed away in July of 1988. But who were the last two big guns that feuded with Adrian Adonis? And there it is. If you know, uh, hit up mickcarch at gmail.com or george at uh, gshire at comcast.net. And uh, I guess what I wanted to say, guys, is you guys in uh, about a minute each here, it seemed like the best heels were also the nicest guys outside of the ring. Was that safe to say? Uh, I'll let you go ahead and start it here, George. That is absolutely true, Chris. Um, the Mad Dogs, Nick Bockwinkles, you name them, hard-boiled Haggerty's, all of them, Stan Kowalski, they were so believable and so so real in the ring. But when you got them outside, I mean, like I alluded to earlier, you could, you could give them a hug. They were kind, they were considerate, they, they were friends. And th- that to me was the, a credit to their, their ability to do what they did so well. You know, people call it acting sometimes. Well, you know what? That's the greatest actor in the world that can do that Jekyll and Hyde transfer, transformation. And some of our mm-hmm. most beloved actors in Hollywood are these types of people. These wrestlers were it. Yeah. What say you, Mick, in about 60 seconds here? I would completely agree. And I would say in my personal experience, the guys that were over huge as baby faces, a lot of times tended to be the biggest assholes around. Oh, yes. Because they believed the publicity. They soaked in the cheers of the fans. And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, it went to their head. Mm-hmm. The heels, on the other hand, did all their you know hatred and, and bullshit in the ring. When they got outside the ring, it was almost a respite for them to be able to come down to earth yeah. and be normal. Speaking of baby faces, let's do the best baby faces. Top, you guys each pick 10 baby faces for next week. That sound good? Sounds, Sounds great. great. Like it. All right. That's what we got. And uh, any final words, guys? Uh, not for me. I know George's stomach is rumbling over there, so we got to get going here. So we'll uh, we'll wrap her up. So you know, man- Karch, I'd like to go through one episode with you not taking a shot at me, but I realized that would be witnessing a miracle and I'm never...